it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Where did you watch the start of the race yesterday? I watched it behind the pen to the side of Pirelli. Good vantage point. Oh, it was amazing because it was sort of right in the cauldron of the noise. And Pirelli had marked off a little wooden chair for me. Because I was complaining about the fact I never get to sit down for the race and it's harder to make notes. And I came back and there was this chair adorned with my name, just said pinky across this chair. And it had, a, and they left me a little bottle of water and a little waffle. Oh. Now, Pinks, I watched the start from the top of race control. It was amazing. Oh. So you could see that you could see the start finish straight. You could see turn three as well. Okay, you win, you the, win. No, no, no. But this, the location's not why I'm telling you this story. I was leaning against the fence, okay, looking down at the start finish straight. Max is just pulling up to his grid slot. And then someone is pushing really hard behind me. And I was like, God, a bit of personal space. God, who is this? Turn round. It was the Queen. What? Queen Maxima of the Netherlands was watching. Oh, I see. <laughs> when you said the Queen, I got excited. But no, no, that's still pretty cool. Yeah, and I was like, wow. Anyway, she said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, but come on, Max, come on, Max. She was getting really excited about it. Wow. Then we all rushed across to the other fence to watch Max leading through turn three. My little touch with royalty. Very nice. She she looked very glamorous, I thought. I saw the pictures of Max with the king and queen by the car. Yeah, very glamorous. I mean, do you know, just everything about the Dutch is cool. Yeah. They're just all cool. And I loved everything. Every element of the weekend, because what I find that they are pretty chilled out bunch and yet very organized. So you'd think with that kind of organization comes a kind of disciplinarian attitude. But no, they're just very relaxed, very chilled, love a good time, great sense of humor. If there's anyone out there that is thinking about which races to do next year, pen the Dutch Grand Prix into your diary. It was amazing. Well, I'm absolutely buzzing and thrilled to be on the F1 Nation podcast this morning with Mr. Tom Clarkson. Double Dutch delight for Max Verstappen, who crosses the line to win the Dutch Grand Prix. Tiesto waves the flag, turn up to the max, listen to that roar. What a weekend. I mean, it made me realise too just how much we have missed the fans. From the moment we walked into that place on Friday morning to the moment we left four hours after the race, it was the best atmosphere at a race that I have ever experienced. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. There was such a buzz, such a positive vibe about the whole place. Every age... Every background, gender, you know, I loved the cross-section of people that you saw. Nearly 30,000 of them cycled in, which I love. And I don't know if that can be emulated by any other country because I just think it's part of the Dutch culture. But it meant that there were no traffic jams. So people weren't getting stroppy and stressed and worried about missing out. So everyone arrived in just the best spirits. And 
they cheered. I know that some people will say, oh, they were booing Lewis, but actually they weren't. I talked to Mercedes off the record and they said they had tremendous support when they got there. They just cheered on everyone and it just made for such a brilliant atmosphere. On the Friday night, I ran the track and at every corner, there were people still in the stands, still dancing, because there was a DJ. I thought that was brilliant. Every time there was a bit of downtime, they had a DJ. And it was just keeping the atmosphere going. Every turn I went round, fans were just bouncing and they were clapping me and cheering me on and it just made you run a bit faster. And I kept stopping at the corners and having a little, a little dance. It was something else, and it was so respectful. There was more booing towards Lewis in Hungary. Yeah, yeah. Two races ago, definitely. Whereas I felt it was very respectful. Yes, there was a little bit of... I mean, it helped, I think, that, that um, you know, Max was on pole. Max won the race. Of course it did, but very respectful. Lewis was buzzing. He yeah. At every available opportunity yeah. he had, he was saying how great the crowd were. And I think everyone in Formula One was getting off on the atmosphere. And yeah. yes, it's wonderful in Mexico. And it was wonderful back in the day at the Hockenheim Stadium section when Michael Schumacher was doing his thing. But the party vibe, as you say, having the DJs there. DJ, what was his name? Tiesto. Tiesto, yeah. And even during the red flags in qualifying, when there was no track action, bang, immediately the DJ was back at it to keep the tempo up. Yeah. I, I think there will be a lot of race promoters taking notes over how the Dutch did that. Just a wonderful, wonderful celebration of Formula One. And I don't know if Sebastian Vettel was just incredibly busy after the race, but there was no litter. <laughs> you noticed that? That is true. We yeah. were driving back and the streets were clean. It was beautifully, yeah. beautifully orchestrated, put together and all with great sense of humour. Everyone you spoke to. I think it helps that it's a brilliant location for a racetrack. You're very near Amsterdam. You're right on the coast for people who haven't been to Zandvoort. You know, the car park is overlooking the sea and you've got 12 miles of sandy beach right next door to the track. So so the whole thing, you, you kind of have to pinch yourself and, and remind yourself you're not on a beach, <laughs> a beach holiday. And I think if you're in the crowd, you are doing that. So yeah. everything came together. The weather was perfect. And of course, the local boy got the job done. Yeah, that I mean, that definitely made a massive difference. If, if it hadn't have happened, no doubt it would have been a damn good. But you felt that nothing would dampen the Dutch party atmosphere. You know, they were there to have a great time. And actually, I heard that it was the first time they'd been allowed to fully congregate. It was the first big public event since COVID. So everyone was just so looking forward to it and wanted to make the absolute best of it. But there was no kind of undercurrent of tension, was there? Everyone was just there for a good time. And we stayed in a place called Harlem, which was about half an hour from the track. And it was kind of like a clean Soho. So it was like quirky and full of character, loads of restaurants and bars and cool shops. But it was really clean and people were just bombing around on bicycles. I'm definitely going to go back there with a little holiday with the family, no doubt. Do you know what the weird thing, Pinks, you mentioned the bicycles, is the mopeds going down the cycle lanes. I... <laughs> Mad. It's just mad. You've got to have your wits about you on a bike. But yeah, Pink's, as you say, just a great one to visit. And 
definitely helped this year by, by Max Verstappen, who, hey, you interviewed him in the lead up to that race. I mean, how he dealt with the pressure, I thought was phenomenal. When you spoke to him, what kind of a mood was he in? Just very calm, almost as if he wasn't overthinking it. And I think that's kind of key. He deals with what's in front of him. I just found him to be very measured, very calm, not overthinking it, not giving himself additional pressure. A realist, if you like. So he's saying, this is what's achievable and this is how I'm going to do it. And it's a very sort of methodical approach, something that we could probably all learn from. To think that he's only 23, he's such an old soul. He really does have an old head on his shoulders because he doesn't get swept away by the emotion of it all. He said, well, I asked him, you know, do you kind of have to pinch yourself when you realise all this is ultimately about you? Are you aware of just how much it means to the Dutch people to have a race back after 36 long years because of you? And he said, well, you know, it's lovely. It's wonderful. But actually, if I become a show pony and I'm distracted by all of that, I'm not doing what I'm here to do, which is just perform well. And he's just he's just working with his assets, which is a very fast car, great teamwork and a great mindset. And he's got a great support network helping him throughout. How interesting you talk about the, the support network, because I think people like Christian Horner, even his father, Jos, Raymond Vermeulen, his, his manager, they are obviously working so well as a team at the minute. And I think for Christian, he actually made the point, didn't he, just before the start of the race, that all we could do was do the same as we do at every other race meetings at the same time, discuss the same things. And everyone helped him to deliver that performance, which I thought was a champion's performance. I thought if Max can keep it together in that kind of environment, the ultimate pressure cooker environment, then he's not going to crumble if this comes down to a championship decider at the end of the year. I think, as you say, Pinks, I think he is so mature, old head on young shoulders and... Um, I think if you're a Mercedes, you'd be worried after what you saw this weekend, both in terms of how Max dealt with it and how inch perfect Red Bull were as well. And whereas Mercedes, I thought, was slightly undercooked all weekend. Uh, they, they were. And you'd have to say part of that was down to the fact that Lewis was on the back foot, having had a lack of running time in practice. You know, he didn't he didn't get the long runs in in the same way because of of his engine issues. But you felt Pinks, that, yeah. it, it goes even further back than that, though, because Andrew Shovlin, their chief trackside engineer, said after the race that we arrived and realised that all of our simulator settings were wrong Ooh. and that we had to make a lot of setup changes when we started running on Friday morning. And so they were on the back foot right from the off. Mm. And then, as you say, Lewis had his problem on Friday afternoon, which meant they couldn't do any long runs, couldn't test the hard tyre, which, of course, they then didn't run in the race while Max did. And you've got to be bang on. You can't be bang average to beat Red Bull this year. You've got to be absolutely on your A game. And, yeah. and they weren't. And, and, it, and it showed. And it meant that they had to sort of throw everything at strategy and it felt a bit as if they were clutching at straws going oh what else can we try and it just it didn't work out it wasn't kind of like a methodical measured approach in the same way that Red Bull was and this is what happens isn't it when you when you are playing catch-up you have to 
I don't want to say clutch at straws because they're better than that, but you're just giving it everything in the hope that something pays off and, and, it, and it wasn't to be. But, you know, having said all of that, you've got to look at Lewis's performance in quali and respect what he was able to do considering everything we've just mentioned. Yeah, how far back he was going yeah. into this. Yeah, absolutely right. But again, that was the one time in the weekend where Red Bull weren't perfect in that um, exiting the bank turn three, which was so popular, wasn't it? But the bank turn three, Max had a double shift, which lost him a bit of time. And then he didn't open his DRS on the pit straight. So the gap to Lewis would have been bigger, 0.3 perhaps. But yeah, Lewis still did a wonderful job. Hey, here's the thing. I thought Valtteri was going to hold up Max a little more in the race. Mm. Imagine if he'd been able to back Max into Lewis a little bit more so that Lewis could have then made that second pit stop, got the undercut. But Max was gone, wasn't he? Passed and gone at the first available opportunity. We're not going for fastest. Why not? Right, so he's gone purple, purple. Fastest first sector, fastest middle sector uh, for Valtteri Bottas. Valtteri, it's James. Please abort the fastest lap attempt for the end of the lap. And he might just be slowing down a bit as he crosses the line. Yeah. He did slow down. He did abort the, ch the, the fastest lap attempt. He still got the fastest oh. lap, though. Oh, no. Just playing around. He did slow down because I was watching the mini sectors. But he's still gone quickest, so Lewis is now going to have to come in to get that fastest lap point back. Yeah. I need that extra point, guys. Copy, we're on it. Okay, Lewis, uh, box, box. The crucial thing for Hamilton is, it, can he get the fastest lap of the race on the last lap of the race? And he does, so he wins that extra point for the fastest lap on a day where he and Mercedes were second best to Max Verstappen and Red Bull. Valtteri Bottas will come home third it's the worst kept secret in Formula One that Valtteri's leaving the team. How do you manage Valtteri Bottas if you're Mercedes in these remaining races of the season? You bring him in five laps from the end, say he's got vibrations, which I don't think anyone was really buying, and he's going to put the fastest lap in and he puts the fastest lap and then he's told to pull out of the fastest lap, but by then he's already gone purple in one and two and <laughs> therefore nailed the fastest lap. So, oh, sorry, got the fastest lap and then your teammate gets it anyway because he's got to get whatever points are on the table which again emphasizes just how close this fight is is that every single point counts how do you manage Valtteri very difficult and I think the fact they were so jumpy at the end of the race proves that they're nervous for James Valls to get on the radio and say please abort the fastest lap do you not get this but equally in Valtteri's defense why did they pit him if you don't want him to go for That's fastest it. lap? I don't get it. Why put him on those tyres? And imagine if there had been a yellow flag on the last lap that had prevented Lewis from getting it, for example. Oh, I mean, it was a gamble in itself for Lewis to go for it because imagine if Max had had a problem and he'd basically thrown away the opportunity to win the race just to seek for that single point for the fastest lap. And I think the litmus test is going to come at Monza, which has been a Mercedes stronghold. They've won five of the last seven races there. So if Red Bull are competitive there, then I think it's properly game on for Red Bull to win this world championship. Mercedes have to win the next two races to be in with a shout of, of, of claiming this championship. So the pressure's on and 
on the subject of Bottas, they really need him to bank some points and be a good support to Lewis. Do you know what, though? I'll counter that by saying, look how strong Red Bull were between Monaco and France. And they were sort of 30 points ahead in standings. And we thought, oh, wow, this is it. And then Mercedes came back. Bit of bad luck, a couple of DNFs, whatever it is. Uh, things out of their own hands and it's game on anyway. I mean, I don't think you can make any calls until we see the checkered flag in Abu Dhabi, which is what I love about it. I love it. <laughs> this is why it's such a good season, isn't it? Oh, God, it's amazing. Let's talk about Checo. The curious case of Sergio Perez. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he's obviously confirmed his future with the team, whereas the many would be saying, hang on a minute, what about Pierre Gasly? The lad can't do any more but they've made it quite clear that Gasly hasn't got a future at the Red Bull senior team. They've re-signed Checo. We all respect his talent. He's obviously a magnificent racer, but he's just not qualifying well enough. And, and those mistakes in quali, both his and the teams, really, you know, to be out in Q1 was hugely frustrating for him. He looked like he enjoyed himself, though, didn't he, yesterday? Working his way through the field at a track, they said, you'll never be able to overtake on. Perez proves them wrong. Yeah, but he was in a very fast car and he still managed to ruin a set of hard tyres trying to pass, I think it was Nikita Mazepin. Well, he did say afterwards he was right on the limit with each of those overtakes. None of them were easy. So clearly it is a difficult place to overtake on. But I think he deserved driver of the day for the way he performed, you know, a recovery drive to that extent. But it's just quality though, isn't it? I mean... You have to give. I mean, we've been saying this for years and we thought that um, they'd found the answer in Checo. But you have to have a rear gunner in a fight this tight. You have to have both of your drivers at the front to give you strategic options. As you say, the curious case of Sergio Perez, because he started quite strongly. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt he, he won. He was he was exactly where he needed to be in Baku when Max had the tire blowout. He was on the podium in France. He was doing the job, and then suddenly we get into the sort of second half of the season. He has the three DNFs coming into this race. Then there was the confusion in qualifying that saw him not get that final lap in in Q one, and it's all sort of slipping away and it's a sort of pattern we've seen so many times at Red Bull drivers starting strongly and then <laughs> Max's brilliance gets to everybody is my conclusion and then you start to overdrive or whatever or whatever's going on in your head to try and compensate and try and beat Max Verstappen and I thought Checo was going to be the answer in that he was mature enough to not let Max get to him but it seems that it is. I mean, I don't think it's so much. I don't think it's so much letting him get to you. I think it's more about the car. I think we've said this before, and we should labour the point that it is so difficult to get into a new car, as we've talked about with Daniel, Carlos, Sebastian. You know, it's not easy to jump into a completely different car. And also, this is a very specific car that is very much tailored for Max Verstappen. So there's a very small operating window and. You know, I can see it on Checo's face when he comes into the pen afterwards. He's just sort of deep in thought, face a bit scrunched up. Even when he's had a relatively good race, as he did yesterday, he's still scratching his head about how he can really unlock all the potential in qualifying. So I think it's it's probably about Max as well and about his presence and about how it absolutely is his team and his championship, you know, he's gunning for. 
you know that you're playing second fiddle to Max, which I know is always going to do something strange psychologically, isn't it? But I think it's also about the car mm-hmm. and the traits of this car that's difficult to come to terms with. Oh, it'd be interesting to talk to Pierre Gasly about this, wouldn't it? It really would. You know, driving so brilliantly at the minute. What is he? Qualified fourth, finished fourth here in Holland. Okay, that's it, mate. We made it. We made it. Nice job. Nice job. Yes. Very happy, guys. Very happy. Fantastic job all weekend. Franz Toss said after the race that it was Pierre's best performance of his career. He thought he was that good all weekend. Wow. Outperforming the car, whatever that means. I never understand that. But Yeah, um, but I, I asked him, you know, it feels like you really are in a purple patch in your career. Is it about the car? Is it about you and your mentality? Is it about the team? Is it all of the above? And he said, yeah, he really felt that something had clicked within the team and that he felt that his opinion was valued and that he was really kind of molding this team around him. I mean, you look at his teammate, how far off he is and you know how much we love Yuki Tsunoda, but he's just not delivering, is he? Pinks, I'm, I'm interested that he says he's feeling wanted and loved by Alpha Tauri because I, for Pierre Gasly to make the next step in his career, I feel he needs to leave the Red Bull mm. family. He's not going to get back in a Red Bull racing car. Otherwise, yeah. that would have happened now. And I would love to see him go to an English team. And actually, I think Williams would have been a really good fit for Pierre Gasly. It's still, although the, the Williams family is no longer involved, it's still got that family atmosphere that would really embrace someone like Pierre. And I would love to have seen him replace George Russell at Williams next year. But he's staying at Alpha Tauri and, you know, let's hope they come up with another good car and we can still see some more brilliance. But It clearly is a good car. I mean, you may, maybe we should just be saying this is a great car. I'd love to see what Max could do in an Alpha Tauri. Oh, yes. That's a really good point. Yes. What? So let's say, what, two tenths between Max and Pierre? Where would that have put that car on various grids this season? They're doing a brilliant job. And again, Honda have done a brilliant job developing their power unit. But I still feel, though, however good the car is, Pierre needs to break away from Red Bull and just stretch his legs, spread his wings and and learn a different way of doing it. He's been part of the Red Bull family for a long time now and it still irks him. Clearly it still irks him about, you know, what's happened with Red Bull and being overlooked. Okay, but again, playing devil's advocate. Go on, go on. Did your approach work for Daniel? I mean, when you consider, look, I don't think Daniel has any regrets about the moves he's made, but ultimately... Think how many more wins he would have under his belt if he'd stayed at Red Bull. It's not always the answer to break away from the family. It's not always the answer to move from a team that understands you and you understand. Although I would say (laughs) that it's slightly different for Pierre because publicly there was a bit of a spat, wasn't there? And he publicly has, he told the world that actually he didn't get the support he needed from Red Bull. And, And I think moving away from Red Bull racing is very different from moving away from Alpha Tauri. Mm. Moving away from the A team is a much bigger step than moving away from the B team. You know, he wants to win races and championships, more races and championships. And I just feel he needs to go somewhere else. And, and to answer your question about Daniel, I actually think it did work in the end when he went to Renault. I thought he was loving his racing last year. Really? Yeah. Why did he go to McLaren then? 
because year one wasn't so good with Renault. And I think he'd made the decision to leave Renault at the end of year one. Had he not already committed to McLaren prior to the start of last season, I wonder whether he would have gone. I mean, I think the Alpine now is a very different place than Renault then in year one. I would agree with that. I think the changes in hierarchy as well have been significant. I think, you know, just talking to Fernando Alonso after the race, he's really enjoying his racing, you know, and actually it's a pretty competitive car. I mean, you know, in fits and starts. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Pinks, on the topic of Fernando Alonso, Mercedes throughout Friday were monitoring uh, the times of drivers through turns two and three, three being the new 18 degree banking uh, that they'd installed at Zandvoort since the last race in, uh, well, since last year, let alone 1985. And guess, well, given that we're talking about Fernando, I think there's no <laughs> guessing involved. Away, yeah. but, <laughs> but Fernando was the first driver to nail that corner. And I, I did it. wonder, do you think that's his Indianapolis experience coming to the fore? Oh, good point. Good point. I was really interested in the line that they were taking, whether they were going up or down. I think up seemed to be the quick way, wasn't it? But Yeah. And it looked so cool. Again, again, back to the track run. As I was coming round. Did you go high or low, Pinks? High or low through turn three? At turn three high, by the end, (laughs) the the last corner, I was was practically on the grass. I mean, I was slipping down the bank. It was hard. Your ankles kind of went at a funny angle. Imagine what that did to a Formula One car. Pinks, I last went to Zanvoort 25 years ago for the Marlborough Masters Formula 3 race. And... I walked the track. I didn't run it. Wouldn't have kept up with you anyway. It's amazing how they've managed to retain the spirit and the layout is pretty much the same. All they've done is change turn three and the last corner by putting the banking in. The rest of it feels the same. It's fast. It's flowing. I love the fact that there was gravel right up against the curbs, no track limit issues. And in fact, very few accidents as well this weekend. Yes, Carlos Sainz had a moment in practice and, and the both two Williams, Williams is. Yeah. But other than that... Yeah, I, no, I agree. I thought there would be more in the, in the race and there wasn't, which was great. Drivers respecting the track and track limits. And it raises the question as to whether we can start going to more of these old school tracks because we've made such huge strides with car safety that if the barriers are a bit closer and one of the reasons I think the atmosphere was so great is that the the grandstands are close to the track at Zandvoort Lewis made the point after the race at Silverstone wonderful atmosphere but the grandstands are so far back Mm. you feel a little bit removed from it and if in doubt throw in a gravel trap (laughs) yes when you're by the sea We have Formula One's Managing Director of Motorsport in the waiting room. Ross Braun, I feel we should let him in. Oh, absolutely. I'm (laughs) honoured. Hello, Ross. Great to have you with us. Thank you for your company. And we are buzzing after the Dutch Grand Prix. It's a unanimous yes from us. How do you reflect on the weekend? Well, we've seen we've seen pockets of Dutch enthusiasm at the Grand Prix, and now we had the full concentrated version because... um, yeah, normally there's an orange grandstand, which is pretty lively, and everywhere was lively orange grandstand. So uh, I think Christian Horner put it well when he said it felt like you were in the Dutch nightclub for three days. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I know. I, I I came away buzzing, but also exhausted because <laughs> it is it's like a marathon. It's like being at a stag do for three days. I've never been on a stag do, but I can assume. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great to, um, given the 
the challenges that the promoters have had from, from day one. There's been um, a lot of resistance to the race taking place for various reasons, some of which we had to be respectful to. Obviously, it's a sensitive environmental area, and um, there's a lot of consideration that had to be made. But the first challenge was to make it a, a raceable circuit. And um, you know, we all know from the days when we raced there back in the 80s, it, it was uh, pretty tight and twisty. So the first decision was the reconfiguration of the track. And I take my hat off to the promoters because they, you know, it's a private venture and they committed everything that was needed. And um, it came off very well. We're really pleased. Ross, what about the banking? Natalie and I have just been talking about it. Well, where it started, Charlie did the early track inspections with some of our people. And um, Craig Wilson, who's our track guru, he said Charlie was the first one to suggest that perhaps we should put a banking in to make that last corner flat out to effectively extend the length of the straight. And once we sort of got that thought in place and started to work on things, we realized that we could actually make some really good features, uh, not only there, but turn three and one or two other areas. So Tarzan, which is first corner in the straight, was always banked that had some contour already. So it was following in the, the theme of that. And, um, you know, we're really, really chuffed because it worked remarkably well. And the great thing was the drivers loved it. You know, they were full of praise. They enjoyed it. And when you get a strong buzz from the drivers, it's infectious. We knew without DRS before that final corner, it wouldn't be quite such opportunity to overtake. But given it was the first year and everyone was just a little bit nervous, we were 100% confident there wasn't a problem doing it. But I think it was quite right to be conservative. And I don't think it spoiled things. So, um I'm hoping next year we can open the DRS between the last two turns and then um, the banking will be DRS. Bring back the banking in Monza, I say, Ross. Yeah, have you ever tried to walk up the banking in Monza? Yes. It's, it's impressive. Steep. You're on your hands and knees by the time you get to the top. Is this banking something we're going to see replicated elsewhere in the world? We've introduced it in Saudi, particularly when we do a new circuit. And are those Saudi, to all intents and purposes, a, is a sort of street circuit because it's going to be utilising the Corniche uh, in Jeddah. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, unique circuit being built to tie it all together. And there's a, there's a lovely bank corner at the end of the circuit, which um, that looks pretty impressive. And Abu Dhabi have bitten the bullet on the, the, the last part of the circuit. The last of the third or half of the circuit has all been modified for this year. And that will have some gently bank corners, nothing quite as severe as turn three. We had some negative, depends how you describe these things, but we had some off-camber corners in Abu Dhabi, which I think we've done with good intent, but the drivers never really enjoyed them. So we've corrected that and put in some gentle banking. So it always helps to pick up the speed and also seems to give different options as to how you take those corners, which is great. Well, we are big fans of that, there is no doubt. What about other pointers that race promoters around the world can take from the Dutch because they just seem to nail it when it came to organisation, cleanliness, entertainment, everything was well thought through. It ticked every box. I think from our, what we saw from our perspective was they were very receptive to working with our people in terms of trying to get everything in place. And, you know, even in the week preceding and over the weekend, anything we needed or had to be done, they did it straight away. A lot of the people involved were, were what I would call professional promoters. They're involved in 
rock concerts and other sort of events. So they know what's needed to make those things work. And combining that with in a Grand Prix environment you know, is a perfect combination. I mean, you have to have the level of enthusiasm as a crowd. That's a great sort of foundation to build on. But they certainly gave the crowd what they wanted. And that was brilliant. We had quite a few promoters there, actually, over the weekend, which was great. Tom Garfinkel, who's a promoter for Miami, did a great presentation to the teams of how Miami is going to look. And he and his wife were there for the weekend seeing what happened in Holland. I think it opened their eyes as to what, what's possible. So yeah, these things are catalysts. And you know, incrementally, we just keep trying to raise the bar on what we expect from a race weekend. At the core of it, you have to have a great race and you have to have a great racetrack. And a great Dutch winner. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> that always helps. What about the great Dutch winner? How, how impressed were you by Max? Because you went to Hockenheim in the stadium section there when Michael Schumacher was you know, in his pomp. How difficult is it for the local hero to stay focused in that kind of environment? I think what you need to do is just make sure they don't physically have any activities to distract them from what they're doing. So you just keep the weekend as normal as you can. You know, inevitably, there'll be uh, VIPs and celebrities. In this COVID era, that's a little bit dampened down. Obviously, we don't have a flood of people going through the paddock. But just keeping their weekend as normal as possible is the, is the key thing. If you do that, then, of course, you know, the outside influences are reduced. And, and Michael always dealt with it pretty well. He enjoyed it. You know, there's no doubt he enjoyed the uh, atmosphere. And I'm sure Max enjoyed the atmosphere. You couldn't help it. You, know, you look around and saw all of that. But, yeah, he's pretty focused. He's just making sure they don't do anything. They don't have to do anything abnormal over the weekend. You don't take them off to dinners or too many fan events, etc., that can eat into their time. They just need to keep this standard and rigorous schedule uh, of a race weekend. No Dutch coffee shops, for example. Uh, it was a perfectly normal race weekend for Tom, just hanging out with the Queen, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah. Ross, were you hanging out with the King and Queen as well? Uh, we, we met, I met them. I, I had some things on. Uh, Stefano spent a bit more time with them. Uh, but they were very passionate about the uh, about the racing. Of course, having a Dutch hero like that, it galvanises the, pop, you know, the population, doesn't it? And um, I thought the national anthem being sung on the finished podium was fantastic yeah very cool now talking of passionate fans we are of course going to a hotbed of italian support next weekend with the tafosi which i know is a, a place you hold very close to your heart i mean it's uh it, it just keeps the buzz of this triple header alive and obviously spa was a massive anticlimax for everyone but you come back with zanvort and then monza it's just great for the fans the paddock everyone alike isn't it yeah spa was a tragedy because we had you know, so many fans there. And it, it, you know, all these circuits are different uh, in terms of not only the, the circuit itself, but the fans and the uh, far is generally thought of as a real core, hardcore race fan circuit. You know, they, they want to see the cars performing. They want to see a Rouge. They want to see Rad. They want to see all the circuit and um, enjoy it. I often feel there's a different type of fan at different circuits. But at, at Monza, it starts to stray into being a football crowd. <laughs> uh, the passion is is raw. You know, the track invasion after the, the you know, you, then, you, you just pray your car doesn't break out, uh, retire on the circuit before the end of the race because there's nothing left of it by the time you get to it. But that's, you know, that's the raw passion of, of the Monza fans. And um, it's great to see we've got them back this year, even if it's in a controlled way. 
it's 15 years since you left Ferrari. Are you still embraced by the Tifosi as if you're, you're one of them? It is lovely, actually, to go back because um, I'm still referred to as engineering when any, whenever anyone talks to me there. I can still get a booking in a restaurant. <laughs> Take us with you. Because <laughs> uh... we can't. <laughs> um, no, it's lovely. And I've been back to the factory a few times. And there's a lot of faces I recognize and remember. And uh, they've always been more than very, very generous whenever I've uh, gone back there. So it was great that I left in the way I was able to. And uh, I would hate it to have left Ferrari under a cloud. And as it was, I left, uh, I think, uh, after 10 wonderful years. Everyone sat to, to see each other go. So that meant um, it's always been a real pleasure to go back. And the same with Monza. It's still a very um, dear place in my heart. And what about the sprint race format, Ross? Can we expect the same as Silverstone? Yes, it will be. Oh, I said race. Sorry, I'm just supposed to say sprint. The F1 sprint, Pink. Sorry. I do the same. That's one of the issues we've got to address. It will be the same format, and we want to try it on a different circuit. We want to get everyone's feedback with a view to perhaps tuning it for Brazil so that we see what's required. I don't think we can make any fundamental changes because the teams have obviously agreed to what we have in terms of the number of points scored and the format, etc. But we'll work on it for Brazil. And we're putting together a proposal now to the FIA and the teams as to what we may do next year. And we very much want to continue it and to see if we can enhance it. And perhaps we've listened to the comments, uh, the comments about it being a race, not uh, a qualifying session, comments about pole position, how many points you should score for it? Should it be a standalone event as opposed to a continuation of the, the qualifying? So there's a number of things we, we need to discuss with the various groups, particularly the FIA and the teams. But I think what it did achieve was the filling out of the whole weekend to make everything relevant. The drivers in particular enjoyed Friday. They said going into a short practice session and bang, qualifying was fantastic for them. They thought the sprint qualifying was great at the beginning, but um, certainly around Silverstone didn't offer too many opportunities for overtaking or improving their position. So that's why we want to try it at Monza. So there's a lot uh, we can learn, but it's been very positive. How is this going to work next year, Ross? I would like to see at least the three events, maybe more. We're looking at strengthening the commercial platform of the sprint event to give it a bit more identity. And you know, we have to show to the promoters the teams and most importantly the fans that this is a really entertaining and worthwhile addition to the weekend and I think it's it's say taking the overall approach you know Friday becomes very relevant and at the moment Friday is for the real enthusiasts so and I think you know it can be a win-win for everyone we don't want to alienate any of our core fans but I think in all the other aspects it could be win-win what about drivers Ross can we talk drivers Kimmy how much are you going to miss him when he hangs up his helmet at the end of the year? Well, he's an enigma, isn't he? As, um, I think as the driver said, you know, what, what will you miss about Kimmy? Well, he doesn't say anything. So <laughs> but he's kind of there, like uh, an iconic. And um, you know, he's been there for a large part of my Formula 1 career. And he just did things totally differently to anyone else. And he, he had a free pass for it. Somehow we all tolerated things that Kimmy did that no one else would get away with. You know, I remember a, a test he missed because he he uh, was somewhat well-oiled 
the night before and just couldn't make it. And I've never heard of that in the modern era of Grand Prix, Grand Prix driving. But yeah, he was fantastic for Formula One and had a huge following, as you know, because he did things differently. And I think one of his heroes was James Hunt. And yeah, I don't think he acted to try and copy James, but I think yeah, they were very like-minded in that respect. They just did their own thing. Kimi always did his own thing, but fantastic racing driver, world champion, deserved world champion, incredibly quick. And um, on the racetrack, he always produced the goods. Our sport needs mavericks, doesn't it? If everyone was the same, it would be boring. There is something of a changing of the guard, though. It feels as if the young ones are really coming of age now. Um, who's stood out and impressed you most of that younger generation? Well, I'm, I'm really excited because this younger generation is coming through. What we've seen is these drivers come through the lower ranks of the sport, the Formula 3, the Formula 2. As you know, one of the things we did when we got involved was to rationalise the whole pyramid of motorsport. And, you know, we had, I think everyone now understands what Formula 3 is, what Formula 2 is, and what Formula 1 is. And, and that was important because we felt the GP 3000 or the, I've forgotten what it used to be called now, to be honest, but they, um, it was confusing for fans. And we now have this pyramid of, drivers coming through and uh, the George Russells and the Charles Leclerc's and those sort of drivers, Landon Norris, they've all come through that, that pyramid. Doesn't mean to say we can't get drivers from other, um, really pleased that's working because those series run on Grand Prix tracks and they run in Grand Prix weekends and you get to see the drivers and we're putting more and more effort into promoting those series when COVID eases a bit, we've got plans for the paddock in Formula 2 and Formula 3 to be open for the paddock club of Formula 1. So they can go and have a tour of the Formula 2 and Formula 3 paddock to meet the drivers and get really involved. So that, that's something we think is working really well. And George is looking really impressive. Charles has obviously made his mark. Lando's made his mark. And these guys... They're nicely confident in what they're doing. They're, they seem to be well developed. I mean, if you have a conversation with George or, or Lando or Charles, they have very relevant opinions on things that we uh, should or shouldn't do. And I like it a lot. You know, they bring some fresh thought. And they're a new generation. You know, it's social media, the digital side of our sport, they're massively well connected in that respect. Ross Pinks wants to have her own Grand Prix team. Can I take you back to Can I take you back to Braun Grand Prix though? Of all of the young guys coming through, and and let's take money and prior contracts out of the question. If you could have any two young guys on the grid now driving for Braun, who would you choose? That's a tough one. I think George Russell, and I think it's a really close call between Charles and Lando. That would be a difficult call. Well, my big question is, can I recruit you to run my team, please? I'm too old now. I'm too old now. I, <laughs> never, I retired never. from that a few years ago. Prefer a quieter life. Ross, thank you so much for your time today. It's always great to hear your thoughts on, on everything that's happening. And uh, we can't wait to get to Monza. Great. We will see you there. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Ross. Really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. He's such a hero, isn't he? Because he's just so relevant still. And, you know, I, I find that he's so accessible. I think he is is great for us, such an asset to the paddock because 
you can just stroll up and ask him any questions and he gives you the answers from the very top of the sport. And you can ask him anything at all. Like yeah. that question at the end, out of the young guys, if you were still running a Grand Prix team, who would you choose? And there's no sort of PR thing. Oh, there are lots of great drivers or anything like that. No, he comes straight out and says, I'd do George in one car and either Lando or Charles in the other. Yeah, it's great to have him on the show. Thank you, Ross. So he's picked George Russell, as indeed have Mercedes, or at least it's all but confirmed. Well, yeah. What are we? We're speaking lunchtime Monday, aren't mm-hmm. we? Do you have your lunch at quarter to 11 in the morning? I don't. Well, except I'm at quarter to 12. It's still quite early for lunch because okay. I'm still in I'm still in Zanville. I'm still oh. looking out at the sea pinks. It's a beautiful day over here. Where, Wonderful. How, how is it in London? Yes, yeah, gorgeous, actually. It's a great weather week here in London, too. Anyway, let's not talk about the weather. Let's talk about the lineup for next year. Pinko, I'm so excited about George Russell at Mercedes. Fabulous, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, we should be immensely proud and excited as uh, two passionate Brits because it's a rarity to have two Brits in a team. Is it the first time since Jensen and Lewis at McLaren? Yeah, I think it, it, it is, isn't it? But I'm so intrigued as to how it's going to play out between those two. I mean, George is so confident at the minute. You remember he had that crash in qualifying. He, he was trying to take turn 13 at Zandvoort 10Ks faster than Max Verstappen and the car just wouldn't have it. It was, you know, and he got the penalty because he was trying to make a move in the pits because he knew that that was a uh, that was potentially on the cards. Apparently, he was only half a kilometer over the speed limit, and he got his five second penalty. Uh, look, he's hungry. He's ambitious. He's all the things you want in a racing driver. Uh, he's also a really nice guy. But hey, Pinkles, in, if he ever drives for your Grand Prix team, yes. I did think I felt a bit sorry for him on Thursday because it was obvious to me that people like you and I were going to ask him about where he was going to drive next year. Mercedes don't want to announce it until they've got all their ducks aligned and Bottas going to Alfa Romeo. But I felt he should have just batted the question away and said, look, I can't talk about it now. You're going to find out very soon. Bang. End of story. But it's your fault, TC. You can't blame him. (laughs) But that's what I was expecting him to say. Right. And then he went, Cha-ching, got my answer. Yeah, and I just sort of, I mean, it was very kind of him to give it, but all it did was open a can of worms for him that I guess he spent the rest of the day dealing with. Yeah, but what other choice do they have? They've got to secure Bottas's future. And I think out of respect to him, he's a great driver and he's been a great asset to the team. Make sure his future's confirmed. Obviously, the Kimi announcement started that domino effect. I kind of agree with you. You could have done it all in one weekend, but then... Zanvoort was very much about Max and A, let Max have the limelight and B, it would get lost in all the clamour around the Dutch Orange Army and their passion for Max Verstappen. Pinkle, I'm not actually suggesting that they should have announced it in Zanvoort. I just wish if I was George, I would have just batted my question away. Do you know where you're racing next year? Okay, well, maybe what you should do in future then, Tom is you should say, this is what I'm going to ask you. This is how you should answer it. I don't want to stick you up. I've just got to be seen to ask the question. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I felt I felt he made it difficult for himself by, by being so generous. Right. Uh, no, I didn't feel guilty because I just felt I was asking the question that you and, and everyone else would, yeah. would have asked anyway. I did actually apologise to him at the airport. I said, you do understand. We just have to ask, but you don't have to answer. He said, no, I know. 
I said, is it getting a bit annoying? And he goes, no, 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 not at all. I think it's probably a bit annoying for you that you always have to ask. And I was like, nah, we just want to know. It's just, you know, we're just excited for him, aren't we? I always think there's no such thing as a difficult question. There's only a controversial answer. Mm, interesting. But hang on a minute. We're talking about relatively young drivers who are thrust into the limelight. Yeah. and Learning on the job. Learning on the job. And then you've got someone like you who's been around the sport for many years, who obviously incredibly nice guy, but you know exactly but, the but. questions <laughs> to get the answers. You know how to. And actually, I thought you you asked the question very well. But do you know? He's like left mm. in a corner. It's either yes or no. And Ted asked a clever question of Valtteri because it was like, what do you look for in a team? I'm not asking you which team you look for that. And one big thing he said was, I want continuity. So implying it has to be a long-term contract, which he's never going to get a Mercedes. So I guess once the minutiae of that contract has been firmed up, he'll be in a position to announce it, which I'm sure will be Monza. Or indeed later today, as soon as this podcast has been published. (laughs) (laughs) So we think it's George and Lewis at Mercedes. We think Valtteri is going to Alfa Romeo. Now, who is going to be alongside him? Well, I I am a big fan of Antonio Giovinazzi. And I know there'll be some people out there saying, come on, has he really done enough? He is a really nice guy. And look what he did in quali on Saturday. He was very unlucky to get that puncher, forced him into a second early pit stop. And, you know, the race sort of tumbled away from him. But to put it P7 in an Alfa Romeo at Zandvoort was seriously impressive. And is there an obvious person to take over? I don't know, maybe Callum Eilor. It would be quite good to see somebody be recruited. Where does Nick DeVries go? Does he have a seat next year I thought Pinks that Mick Schumacher might have made the jump to Alfa Romeo as part of the the Ferrari Driver Academy interesting point Tom because I don't know if you heard him in the pen yesterday breaking news breaking news give it to me no I mean he's absolutely sick to the back teeth of racing with Nikita Mazepin he said I don't get what's going on he keeps trying to charge me off the track and I said look it's difficult you know I'm not making excuses but it's difficult when you're in the slowest car on the grid to prove yourself against anyone, you have to try and beat your teammate because that's the only marker you've got. That's the only way you can bang your drum for your future. But he said, yes, I agree, but there are ways of doing it and it's got to breaking point with those two. So really, can you keep this going for another year at Haas? So actually a move to Alfa Romeo uh, alongside an experienced Valtteri Bottas could be a great thing, not only for the team, but also for mixed development. So it's a great, sh- it's a great shout. It's interesting how quickly that relationship between Mazepin and Schumacher has broken down because they've known each other for years. They used to be karting teammates. Okay, look, I don't know this, but I wonder whether it had broken down sooner, but it was just kept behind closed doors. It just got to the point at Zandvoort where it was at bursting point. And so it's gone public for the first time. What, when they tripped over each other in qualifying? Yeah, but then after the race. Right. and, And there was another incident in the race. So... Oh, look, it's difficult. And Mick is a thoroughly decent bloke. To see him sort of break cover, if you like, and go public about his frustrations, I thought was a surprise. It must mean that it's um, it's pretty bad. So, and it needs managing. And I know that someone like uh, Gunther Steiner is um, a bit of a legend when it comes to management of drivers. But, you know, you're dealing with two guys who both bring a lot of money to the team. And, you know, 
difficult one to manage. I, I also think Nikita quite likes being the bad boy in the way that sort of Kevin Magnuson was before him at Haas. Yeah, maybe. Maybe there's some truth to that. How to get yourself noticed in Formula One. You know, he's sort of be controversial. He's always much more controversial in an interview than Mick ever is. Yes, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Um, but to go back to the driver lineups, I'm very excited at the prospect of Alex Albon coming to Williams. And I oh, really but is hope... is that happening? Is it happening? Uh, I'm told <laughs> that it's looking really good. But there's obviously a bit of toing and froing between... Mercedes and Red Bull because Mercedes will want their driver in there. So do they push for Nick DeFries or do the Williams team under the new management of Jos Capito assert themselves and say, actually, we're going to make our own decisions about our lineup and not be dictated to by Mercedes. So it's another very interesting dynamic. Mm. Alex deserves, in my opinion, a place in the sport. He's a great guy and a great racer. And I feel like his career was cut short and He's been sort of chomping at the bit and on the sidelines. But, you know, do you cross the freight line that is down the middle of the paddock between Red Bull and Mercedes? And I guess Mercedes are worried that all the secrets about their power unit will go straight back to Red Bull if Alex Albon is still a member of the of the Red Bull family. Yes, but I think probably more significantly, they want to develop their own young drivers. They don't want to inherit Alex from the Red Bull programme. But at what, some point, you've got to put all that to one side and just let a young driver's career develop. I feel Nick De Vries is a guy who I don't know that much about. I mean, he won Formula 2, but it wasn't a particularly stellar year of mm. Formula 2, the one that he won. He's Formula E champion, world champion. But again, I don't know where that places him in the hierarchy of, of young drivers winning Formula E. Does that put him ahead of guys winning in Formula 2? Oscar Piastri, for example doing very well. He's on the Alpine Academy. Where Where's he relative to, to Nick De Vries? I don't know. There's still... When you show, I mean, there's, there's, there's yeah. a number of drivers sort of knocking at the door, aren't there? I mean, just to go back to Alex very quickly, you know that Lily, his golfer girlfriend... Yeah, who beats him every time they play. Yeah, well, I mean, she's a pro, so... You, you don't Would she so. beat you, Pinks? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you know, I was watching the Soul, Kevin's, what's it called? Soul Home Cup? Yes, that's on at the minute, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, brilliant, brilliant competition. But anyway, she started following Williams and it's the only team that she follows on social media. So I think that's probably all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great detective work, Pinkles. Well done. I follow her because I want golfing tips. I don't think you need them, Pinks. We digress. Nick DeVries, I can't answer that question. You know, he's a popular guy. I know he did some of the coverage for Formula One this weekend. And he, you know, he's a good little chatterbox. He's got good, strong views. And uh, from what I've been told, a great driver. But like you, it's difficult. There isn't the sort of yardstick, is there, to, to measure him by. But having seen what Alex Albon can do, I really hope that he's back in at Williams. Or not back in at Williams, back in the sport, comma, at Williams. Well, Pinks, I think we've pretty much discussed the Dutch Grand Prix. However, we're now at what I call the any other business section of the show. And what was going on between you and Lando Norris in the pen? If you've forgotten, have a listen to this. Yeah, it got to the point, especially when the wind was as gusty and as blowy as it was today. Blowy was the word. Was blowy. As strong as it was today. Um, oh, no. I, I don't know, it is a word. I mean, yeah, I know, it's just that's going to get clipped or something. No, um, I'm sure it 
then uh, yeah, like when the, the tires are that old and <laughs> that worn, um, it just becomes like such a, a knife edge to perform, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I'm not laughing. Yeah, it's like an. Uh, you can't make me laugh. That's it. Sorry. Stop. Cut. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I've watched that back many times and I still get the giggles. It's so silly, but you know when you start giggling and you cannot stop, you know you're not allowed to giggle. We were talking about it in the office, actually, at the start of the day, saying, isn't it just the best feeling in the world when you giggle? But sort of the worst as well when you know you're not allowed to. And we were discussing whether we've ever had it live on air. And I think I've had it once before in Italy when I lost it with lasers on air. But I got, I don't know, Lando basically <laughs> talked about the wind picking up and he used a certain term. And first of all, I thought he might be talking about flatulence. And then I kind of realised what he was getting at and the sort of faux pas that he'd made. But then I just couldn't have eye contact with him because every time we did have eye contact, we lost it again. And then Charlotte Sefton from McLaren was losing it next time. It was just infectious. And I just think he's got such a lovely laugh that it just makes you want to laugh even more. But yeah, it kind of put oh. pay to our interview because we couldn't get any words out. <laughs> I think we call that TV gold, Pinks. <laughs> so silly, so immature, oh. so unprofessional. I apologise. Brilliant. Well, look, what a way to end the show. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, brilliant weekend. Just going to be buzzing about the Dutch Grand Prix all the way through to Monza. We've got Damon back next week, so get your questions in for him at askdamonhill at gmail.com. Make sure it's a voice note so we can play it out on the podcast. But for now, from both of us, it's goodbye. Oh, you've got to do the sign-off. Go on, TC. F1 Nation is produced by Formula One in association with... Audio Boom! Audio Boom!